Welcome to the podcast of Follow Baptist Church. Our vision and mission is to follow Jesus in our community for His glory. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged and inspired by this message. For more information on Follow Church, you can visit our website at www.followchurch.com.au. We've got two Bible readings today. The first is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. As for these matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in that, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own ambitions, you should mind your own business, and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. And then our second reading is Matthew 28, verses 19 to 20. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. Uh, good morning again, everyone. Thank you, Nathan. And thank you, Nicola and Ernie. That was, that was excellent. <clears throat> there was once a young man, who, a bit like Ernie, a young man who loved God, wanted to serve God, decided to give his life to service to God, so he went off to Bible college, which is a great thing to do. And he, he worked hard and he graduated and he was offered a job as a pastor at a little church in the suburbs. And he went out there with big dreams, great vision, he was going to change the world, he was going to win this town for Christ. And he stood up to preach his very first sermon on his very first Sunday and he prepared it all in advance, but when he stood up and he saw all those expectant faces looking at him, he froze. He couldn't remember a thing and he looked at his notes and it was all just swimming and his heart was beating and he couldn't remember what he planned and in desperation he said, does anyone know what I'm going to talk about today? And the congregation said, no, we don't know what you're going to talk about and the young man said, well, neither do I. And he, he ran off the platform and out the door and across the car park and one of the elders had to chase after him and the elder grabbed him and said, son, son, it's okay, relax, deep breath, it's all right, come on back, let's just... Call it off for this week and we'll have another go next week. So he went back into church and they sang the closing hymn and a week went by and he polished up the sermon a little bit more and made it even better and he was all set to go. And his second week he stood up to preach 
his sermon. And again, same thing happened. Just had a panic attack, completely froze, didn't know what to do, couldn't remember anything. And he said, does anyone know what I'm going to talk about today? Now, the congregation, they were prepared. They talked about it during the week. And they, and they said, yes, mate, it's all good. We know what you're going to say. And he said, good, I don't have to say it. And he was off the platform and he was out the door and he was across the car park and he was halfway around the block by the time the elder caught up to him. And the elder said, come on, son, you can do this. I've got confidence in you. I've got confidence in God. Let's just, let's just go back and give this another go. So another week went by and he polished up the sermon and now it was the best sermon in the world because he'd had three weeks to work on it. And he was practised in front of the mirror and he was all set to go. And he stood up. Now, I need to warn you, regulars, this is not a joke. This is just a story with an illustration, so don't wait for a really funny punchline. He, he, st- he stood up for any, on his very third Sunday to preach his first sermon, and the same thing happened. His mind went blank, and he panicked. He didn't know what to do. And he said, does anyone know what I'm going to talk about today? Now, the congregation, they talked about it during the week. They were prepared, and half of them said, yeah, mate, we know what you're going to say. And the other half said, we don't know what you're going to say. And the young guy said, well, that's good. Let the ones who do know tell the ones who don't. And he was off the platform, out the door, over the car park. He was about three blocks away when the elder caught up to him. And the young man turned around and he said, I'm so sorry. You'll you'll have my resignation in the morning. I'll let you down. I'm just really, really sorry. And the elder looked him in the eye and he said, son, that was the best sermon we've had in this church for three weeks. No, actually, the best sermon we've had for a long, long time. Let the ones who do know tell the ones who don't. And that, doesn't that sum up for us part of our purpose on earth, that passage from Matthew that, that Nathan read to us? To go into all the world and make disciples. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus says, You will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Let the ones who do know tell the ones who don't. So normally I use that story when I'm preaching from Matthew 28 or Acts 1 or a sermon that is all about evangelism and inspiring us to go out there and change the world. But in actual fact, that story is relevant to today as well because the second half of what Nathan read to us from Matthew is called the Great Commission. And the second half of that is to teach them to obey all the things I have taught you. And that's exactly what 1 Thessalonians 4 is about. Paul is reminding them and teaching them to live the way God wants us to live. Verse verse 1 says, We instructed you how to live in order to please God. Now, just a little aside, please note, this does not say how to live in order to earn your salvation. This says how to live in order to please God. As Luke and I and others have explained, and hopefully most of you understand, that we can never earn our salvation. We can never earn our forgiveness by our own efforts or by our own goodness, no matter how hard we try, no matter how good we might be. We have all fallen short of God's standards and we cannot earn that. Salvation is a gift from God. Salvation is a gift that comes through Jesus and only through Jesus. When we believe in him, when we have faith in him, when we put our trust in him and give our lives to him. That is when God forgives our sin. He wipes the slate clean. We are forgiven and we can earn eternal life with him. So this passage says how we should live in order to please God, which should be the natural response. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. So this is how we go about living that. Now, Paul The author of Thessalonians has obviously done this before when he planted the church. He's taught them and now he reminds them. 
and he encourages them to do this more and more because living for God is not one step or one, you know, you achieve one thing and you go, right, beauty, made it, done that, tick, next, pat myself on the back. It's a, it's a lifelong journey, like good health or fitness or a strong relationship. It is something that for our whole lives we continue to invest in it and we learn and we grow and we develop and we practice. Living for God is just like that. In verse 3 it says, It is God's will that you should be sanctified. Now Luke explained to us last week that sanctification is the, the process by which we are transformed to become more and more like Jesus, to become more and more the people that God has designed us to be. And then in verse 7 it says that God calls us to live a holy life. That's what God calls us to. People strive for all sorts of things in this life, don't they? Money and fame and power and pleasure and popularity and all sorts of things that we might strive for. There was a time in my life when I was striving really hard for something. I wanted to be really good at golf. I played golf every couple of weeks with my brother-in-laws and I uh, sometimes after work I'd go out to the driving range and have a hit and I even paid someone money to give me some private lessons to... Um, make me better and it's fair to say um, well I think the lessons were fine it's just the uh, the student wasn't that great but anyway I never became very good at golf but I worked really hard at it and I remember one day I was out playing golf with the two other guys and uh, we were teeing off and there was this a fairway long straight fairway down the middle with a row of trees down to the right and then the trees stopped and the fairway bent around and we couldn't even see the, the green or the, the flag where we were aiming for but we just knew you hit straight down the fairway and then then, you know, off to the side and we'll see. So you've got to understand when I play golf, you sort of you line up your shot and you aim it straight down there and when it goes out that way, well, that's called a slice and when it goes out that way, that's called a hook and if it goes down that way, that's called a fluke. And, <laughs> and so this, this particular day, I hit my shot and sure enough, it went ooh and disappeared over the, near the, through the tops of the trees and I thought, oh, great. But fortunately, I didn't actually hear it, hear that thud plop as it landed in the middle of the trees. So I thought, maybe, maybe I got lucky today and it's actually cleared the trees. And so I got my bag and I got my compass and I got a cut lunch and I headed off through the trees. And, <laughs> and, and sure enough, I got right out the other side of the trees onto another fairway and there's my ball on the edge of the fairway. And I looked up and I could see a green and a flag and I thought, you beauty, I've taken the shortcut. This is fantastic. And I hit another shot, and this was actually pretty good, and I was just on the edge of the green. And I walked up, proud as punch, waiting for me, the other two guys, thinking they're going to be pretty impressed with me. And then I looked over, and I could see their balls right in the middle of the fairway where they were supposed to be, like, boring. You know. um, anyway, and they appeared, and they hit their shots, and they aimed at another green and another flag way up there that I hadn't even noticed. So I thought I was doing pretty well, but I was aiming for the wrong target. <laughs> and when you succeed in getting to the wrong place, you don't really succeed at all. And this chapter tells us that God's will for us is to live, is to be sanctified and live a holy life. That is what we should be aiming for. Verses 3 and 4 and 5 tell us specifically to avoid sexual immorality. Control your own body. Self-control is a very underappreciated thing and it's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Control your own body in a way that is holy and honourable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. Now, don't you love it when these passages come up in the school holidays? It's, uh, it's really, really awesome. And I'm very conscious of who's in the room. So basically, let's, let's say that this passage is telling us not to get frisky outside of our marriage vows. Okay, that might be more, more palatable. 
Now, that, that might seem like a really old-fashioned view, mightn't it, to, you know, save yourself from marriage. But we need to understand something about God, that God is eternal and God doesn't change. Our society's standards in terms of friskiness outside of marriage has changed a whole lot in the last 60 years. And another significant change in the last two or three years about who you might be frisky with. But God doesn't change. See, God doesn't lower his standards in order to be cool and trendy and popular and acceptable. God, God created the world. God knows, designed it how it works best, and he laid out these guidelines, fellas, this is how it works best, okay? This is what you should strive for. And he doesn't change, even though we do. And the Bible talks a lot about um, immorality or inappropriate friskiness, and it tells us to avoid that sort of behaviour. It's quite clear. And it also tells us, both directly and by implication, how we should do it and what might happen when we don't. So the Bible tells us quite clearly that God created a man and a woman, and he put them together, and they had children together. And the Bible tells us that a man will love his father and his mother and will cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one in a, in a really beautiful union. Then the Bible goes on to tell stories about men who who were frisky with women who were not their wives, or women, men who had multiple wives. And it talks about all the problems and the hassles and the heartache and the strife were caused when men didn't do it the way God planned that it works best. So the Bible makes it clear what God's plan is, and it also reveals how things can go wrong when we step outside of God's plan. And it's fair to say, sad but fair to say, in our, in our society, in our culture, there's now a whole lot of people who are living outside what God's ideal guidelines are. In the news and on social media, uh, you've no doubt seen people who have tried to uh, publicly defend the way that God has said that life should be, and those people get attacked, they get abused, they get criticised, they get vilified, they get hated, they even get sacked, simply because they tried to defend the way that God has said life should be lived. Now, if that happens to you, I want to encourage you by verse 8 in this passage, that they are not rejecting you, they are in fact rejecting God. Earlier this year, we did a series through the Sermon on the Mount, and you might remember Matthew 5, 11, hopefully you've read it for yourselves anyway, where Jesus said, Blessed are you, blessed are you, when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Jesus said, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. So that's a great promise to hold on to and I understand that doesn't make the persecution any easier, any more enjoyable to deal with when it happens. And there's a fair, fairly fair chance that we as Christians may even lose the battle in today's society. But we know for certain that God will win the war. We know with absolute conviction that Jesus is Lord of all eternity. And so if we stand up for him, we will be, ultimately we will be on the right side of history, in eternal history. Last week Luke reminded us of John 16, 33, where Jesus tells us, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. It's a great promise to hold on to so this chapter tells us that God's will is for us to be sanctified and to live a holy life. But when we're aiming at the wrong target, when we're heading at the, in the wrong direction, we can end up wasting all our energy 
and not achieve anything of eternal value. Those of you who, who know me know that I like watching sport and um, seeing as Lachlan's brought up the footy, I'll feel free to continue on and just happily mention that you know, I like watching AFL and I happen to be a Hawthorne fan and so I've been pretty blessed in my life, although not so much just now. And I also love watching the cricket and I'm an Australian so I've had a pretty good run, although again, not just now. So it keeps, keeps me humble, but I've actually had a lot of uh, enjoyment watching sport over the years. And I also love watching the Olympic Games and the Commonwealth Games because Australia always, we always punch above our weight, don't we? The Commonwealth Games, it's like watching the high school kids in the primary school sports because Australia just dominates and it's pretty cool. But I distinctly remember watching the 2008 Olympic Games in Beijing, China. And this wasn't an Australian guy, but there was this young guy, a runner called Usain Bolt. Now, I'm sure by now you've all heard of him, he's a, he's a legend. But back then, this was his first Olympic Games. And I'd heard about this guy, how good he was, and I'd seen him run in some of the warm-up events, and he was, he was awesome, he was sensational. And he made the final of the men's 200 metres. And it was about, it was on pretty late our time, it was, might have been about 11.30 p.m. or something our time, and, and I stayed up to watch the final. Now, and I know you're thinking you stayed up for an hour and a half to watch a man run for 19 seconds, you know, that says a lot about me. But, but it, was, it was worth it, because Usain Bolt won, he won a gold medal, and he was absolutely sensational, just power in motion. He was fantastic to watch. But the guy who crossed the line second, I don't even know his name, but I know he was from the USA, and he crossed the line about five metres behind Usain Bolt, and he was pretty happy with himself. But as soon as the race was over, the commentator said, oh, I think he'll be disqualified. And, sure, and they played, replayed the start of the race, and sure enough, you know, in the 200 metres where they come around the curve, this guy had crossed the line, and he took several steps in the next lane inside, which is against the law. He cut the corner, and so he was disqualified. But nobody told him. He didn't know. And the camera sort of stayed on him. He kept flashing to and fro, and it was like, cringeworthy to watch this guy. He was dancing a jig, and he was blowing kisses to the crowd and high-fiving people and he grabbed an American flag and he went off on a lap of honour and he was pretty happy with himself. He thought, I've done it. I'm a hero, I'm somebody, I'm an Olympic silver medalist. And I'm sitting there watching and thinking, no, no, you're not. You're not. You're, you're nothing. It's irrelevant. It's all in vain. It's all futile. And finally, one of the officials came over and told him and pointed up to the scoreboard and you could see this comprehension dawn in the guy's face and the colour drains and he realises that he's not an Olympic silver medalist. He's a no-one. He's disqualified. He's last. Is irrelevant. And all that effort was in vain. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 tells us that when we work for God, that is our, lab our labour is never in vain, but everything else runs the risk of being meaningless and empty and futile. And sadly, I think there will be people who might stand before God one day on Judgment Day and they'll say to God, mate, God, I was successful. I made it. I was good. I had lots of money. I had a great reputation. I had a healthy body. I had nice clothes, perfect teeth, good grades. I had 2,000 Facebook friends. I had 10,000 followers on Twitter. I had lots of girlfriends. I had a great house. Mate, I was somebody. You've got to let me into heaven. And sadly, I think they might discover at the end of their life that they have spent their whole life chasing after the wrong things. Because the only thing that matters when we stand before God, the only thing that matters is Jesus Christ. Did you know Jesus? Did you believe in Jesus? Did you put your faith in Jesus? Did you give your life to Jesus? 
Everything else is irrelevant. Nothing else will matter. I read a story recently about a young guy who worked in a, a high-rise office building, and he, he worked on the 55th floor. I'm not sure how many floors there were in this particular building, but he worked on the 55th floor, and one morning he turned up at work, and he happened to meet his boss in the car park, and they walked in together, and they got into the, you know, the ground floor, and the lifts weren't working that day, so they had to climb the stairs, which you can imagine how much fun that it would be. So as they start climbing the stairs together, they started sharing stories about uh, you know, all the other hard times they'd gone through in life and all the other bad luck stories and bad things that had happened and they're climbing floor after floor and sharing stories and got to the 30th floor, I imagine, and they're probably running out of puff and running out of stories and they're just climb, 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 plod, 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 climb, 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 round and round and round, up and up and up. And finally they passed the 54th floor and they're coming up the last few stairs to the 55th floor and the boss said, do you know, I've just thought of one other bad luck story that's happened to me in my life. And the young guy said, yeah, what was that? And his boss said, I left my key in the car park. <laughs> you can imagine how frustrating that would be to climb 55 flights of stairs and find that you didn't have the key. And then imagine how frustrating, how agonising it would be to go through your whole life and get to the end and stand before God and find that you don't have the wrong key. You've spent your whole life chasing after the wrong things. So if you know people, let the ones you do know tell the ones who don't. Verse 7 specifies for us, God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Despite what some people may say, the Bible is not just full of don'ts. Don't do this and don't do that and don't do the other. It actually points out for us the positives, what we should do. We should aim to live a holy life. See, I think if we only focus on the negative behaviour, and I'm sure God, God created us, God knows this, if you only think about the negative, don't do this, 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 what's going to happen? You're obsessed with it and you can't think about anything else and you end up, end up doing it. But if you replace the negative behaviour with a positive behaviour, and just put that aside and say, focus, live a holy life. Live a holy life. And that's your focus. It's a whole lot easier to achieve, isn't it? Focus on the positive rather than just the negative so our focus should be on trying to live a holy life. Now, verse 3 to 8, that entire section, that, that paragraph in my Bible, uh, is all about um, sexual immorality, or for the sake of today, about inappropriate friskiness. And just let me point out, I'm not trying to make light of this whole topic. I'm just trying to be uh, tone it down. One of the quotes I read during the week, uh, as I was preparing for today, was along the lines of this. Affairs and not just an easy source of material for comedians. They are more accurately called promiscuous fornication, one of the seven deadly sins. So let's just not make too much light of it. And let's be honest, that paragraph is really about our sexual behaviour. But then we get to the next paragraph, a new thought, a new section, starting at verse 9, where Paul says, Now, about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family. And he goes on to say, we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. But an interesting observation, I just wanted to point this out. We were talking about sex, and now we're talking about love. See, they're not the same thing, are they? Now, ideally, sex will happen within a loving, committed, long-term, stable relationship. That's certainly the, the best way, a.k.a. marriage. And the Bible does tell us to love one another, but that doesn't mean frisky, inappropriate behaviour with everyone, does it? No, absolutely not. Of course not. 
I love lots of people, but there was no chance. So, so sadly, in the Western world, there's a lot of sexual activity that goes on that probably has very little, if anything, to do with love. Certainly not biblical love, where God says, husbands, love your wives, lay down your life for your wife. I think there's a, sadly, there were plenty of men in our culture that they love, they like women, they're chasing women, they want something from them, but they probably don't have any interest in laying down their lives in a long-term, committed, sacrificial, devoted, loving relationship. So just remember when you're having conversations about this whole issue with other people that love and sex are not, not the same thing. And love one another does not mean let's legalise inappropriate behaviour with whoever you want, despite what Hollywood might try to tell us. Now, verse 6 says that the Lord will punish immorality. Now, being punished, it's another kind of old-fashioned kind of thing, isn't it? it? might not, you know, nowadays we don't we just justify it and tolerate and, you know, ah, it'll be right. But if there's no punishment, no consequences for doing the wrong thing, then why did Jesus have to die? Why would Jesus have suffered and agonised and hung on a cross and died if there was no penalty, if there was no consequence for doing the wrong thing? But Jesus did do that. On the other hand, if the fact that Jesus hung there meant that everything is... We're all right to go. Everyone's forgiven. Everyone's going to get to heaven now because Jesus has taken the rap. Then why is the Bible so full of all these passages reminding us what behaviours we should avoid and how we should live? Why would Jesus say, if you love me, you will obey me, if it didn't matter? See, the, the truth is that there are consequences for disobeying God. And we can be forgiven, but only by accepting Jesus. James chapter 1 tells us, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word, that means the word of God, the Bible, anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they've heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Now, I know some of you, like me, you know, we may not like mirrors, mirrors and scales and cameras, you know, they're horrible, horrible things that do nasty things to us. But, but we all use a mirror sometime, don't we? So it's a good, good analogy. So the message of this chapter is that we should live our life the way God wants us to. Live a holy life, obey God, and love one another more and more. And by doing this, you will earn respect. Verse 12 says, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so you will not be dependent on anybody. Notice it says your daily life, not your greatest achievements or your highlights or your significant moments or the things you share on Facebook. This is your daily life. That's how you earn respect is by living with integrity every day, regardless of whether people are noticing or not. That's how you earn respect. And we also, we don't want to be dependent on any, anyone except God. There's this world around us more and more. They hate God and they hate God's people and they hate what God's people stand for. We don't want to be dependent on them. We want to be dependent only on God. So the point of my sermon this morning is the same as the point of this chapter, to encourage us all to live for God. 
and we're all in different situations. Some of you might be thinking, you know, I'm doing all right. I'm not, not too far off the mark. I'm, I'm getting there. And others might be thinking, mate, Dave, if you had any idea, I'm so far off. I'll, I will never get there. I'm beyond help. So the truth is somewhere in between. The, the reality is that all of us, no matter how good we think we are, we all still fall short and we all have some work to do. And the other reality is that none of us, no one on earth is so bad that they, their sins cannot be washed away by the blood of Jesus. No one is beyond forgiveness and no one has reached perfection. So all of us are still on that journey, a journey to live life a godly way. And sometimes it might feel like a long journey, but you need to, the one thing you need to remember about all journeys is every journey starts with the first step. Then the second step and the third step, and step by step by step, one step at a time. So today, I want to talk about the first two steps we can take on that journey towards living a godly life. The first step is to acknowledge Jesus. Just acknowledge who he is and what he has done. Jesus is the Son of God. He is the perfect, spotless, sinless, blameless Lamb of God, the one who took away the sins of the world. Jesus died so that we could live. Jesus gave his life so that other people could be saved. John 3.16 tells us God loved the world so much he gave his only son so that anyone who believes in him will not, not perish but have eternal life. Romans 10.9 says, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So acknowledging that is step one. That's how you, that's how you be forgiven for your sin, how you're saved. Step one, acknowledge that. And step two, which is what this chapter is all about, is choosing to respond. Make a decision, set your course, determine your direction, and choose to live your life God's way to the best of your ability. As Ernie said before, hate sin and yearn to live for God. So acknowledge Jesus and choose to live for Jesus. That's the two steps. Step one, remember, Jesus gave his life for me. And step two, decide that I will live my life for Jesus. Step one, step two, one after another. Jesus gave his life for me. I will live my life for him. Jesus gave his life for me. I will live my life for him. Jesus gave his life for me. I will live my life for him. I hope that is your prayer, your pledge, your solemn promise, your vow, your determined direction in your life today. Step one, acknowledge Jesus. Step two, choose to live for him. Let's pray. Father God, we just want to say thank you today. Thank you for the power of your word. Thank you for the guidelines it gives us on how we should live our lives. Thank you for the love and the sacrifice of Jesus who has made it possible for us to live in relationship with you. I pray that all of us will make that pledge, make that, that decision to live our lives for you today and every day. In Jesus' name, amen.